Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science on your radio. This is half an hour where we talk about science. My name is Stu and on the show this week I am going to be looking into why did fish actually evolve gills. Now you might think that's pretty obvious. To breathe. To breathe. But there's some new evidence that suggests maybe that's not the original function of the gills. But we'll get Mm. into that later on in the show Manisha, what have you brought in for us? I'm going to be talking about rewilding. So just get your brains thinking about reintroducing species, maybe dinosaurs, maybe marsupials. Just think so about maybe it. Maybe dinosaurs? You're leaving that open as a possibility? I'm just saying, maybe dinosaurs. Jurassic right. World is a thing, you know. Wow. That's mm. that a scary thing. Well, it is Science Week coming up soon in, in August. So I am going to be sort of getting ready for that. I'm going to be talking to one of the organisers of a Science Week event happening in Melbourne, which is the Astronomy and Light Festival, uh, which is to celebrate astronomy, of course, and light because this is the, the International Year of Light. So I think you'll find a lot of light-themed events around the country for Science Week uh, this year. Uh, See, I'll be speaking to one of the organisers of that. Um, Full disclosure, though, I should say that uh, I am going to be taking part in this event myself. (laughs) I'm not getting paid for it, of course. Um, just you know, having a bit of a having a bit of fun and taking part in it. But just yeah, just to conflict of interest, declare that (laughs) up front. But speaking of science week events that um, I'm involved in, and this is, I'm not going to declare this is a conflict of interest, but um, Lost in Science is having its own trivia night once again. Uh, We did last year, I believe. Yes. Yes. Very successfully. And we'd love people to come along to to it this year as well. It'll be on the 18th of August. It's Tuesday the 18th of August, which is in Science Week, at the Birmingham Hotel on the corner of Johnston and Smith Streets in Fitzroy. So, yeah, the details will be up on the 3CR website and on our Facebook page. So, yeah, look out for that. And Buy a ticket, come along. along, Keep us on the air. Yeah, and um, challenge your science knowledge. The teams are at 4 to 8, so think of all your smart friends that you have and make a good team. Yeah, because we're going to be writing some challenging questions. Really good questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, more of that later. And uh, now on with the show. easy in hindsight to look at the evolutionary process as an inevitable march towards improvement with better adapted organisms outcompeting their inferior ancestors. Obviously, that's not actually how it works at all. That's kind of uh, just a, a very human-centric uh, view of evolution. So the biosphere is full of organisms that evolved into their current form millions of years ago, and in some cases billions of years ago, and they haven't really changed much since. So they're not getting replaced necessarily, uh, even though new things, you know, have developed over time. Also, the changes that allow new adaptations to arise are effectively random. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing directing those random changes that, uh, that give an advantage to an organism. Um, and many biological pathways have provided one advantage before becoming adapted 
to new behaviors. So, you know, uh, a change will occur that allows an animal, say, to behave in a different way, which then gives them an advantage and the uh, original adaptation may change over time. So, like, I think one example that comes to mind for me is um, feathers. Dinosaurs apparently, you know, had feathers before they could fly. Mm. And it's believed that they were for, like, keeping them warm or something like that. Uh, and then was, of course, very useful once they, they developed flight took to the, the birds. Yeah, yeah. Took to the air. Um, and, you know, the same is true of some organs. So, for example, when vertebrates moved from water onto the land, they uh, were using organs that they were originally adapted for swimming mm-hmm. uh, to get around once they, you know, made their way onto the uh, dry land. Um, so an even earlier step in vertebrate evolution came with the advent of gills, which allow fish to extract more oxygen from water because they've got a much increased surface area. The actual shape of the tissue mm-hmm. in the gills gives them this amazingly large surface area. Now, before gills arose, the size of fish was limited as they had to absorb oxygen directly through their skin. Mm. Oh. So you could only have little sort of skinny long fish before they had uh, developed any gills. The assumption has always been that the main advantage of gills was for oxygen absorption. Um, But recently, there's been some research uh, which might challenge that initial assumption and maybe the gills were there for another purpose initially uh, and then became more useful as uh, an oxygen... Extractor. Extractor, yeah. Mm. So what purpose could be more useful than than breeding? Well, this research was focused on the perhaps unfairly named hagfish, um, although its other common name is also not particularly nice. It's also known as the slime eel. (laughs) So the poor poor old hagfish slash Not an attractive fish is what you're saying. Well, no, not really. Uh, The most common species is called Myxine glutinosa, which it gets the name from this slime that it produces. And none of its names are very pretty names. They all sound really gooey. And they they do produce this slime. And the species that are around today are very, very similar to these species that evolved uh, 300 million years ago. So Mm. they're they're quite an old form of fish. Right. Mixing glutinosa sounds like a character from Mad Max Fury Road. (laughs) I can imagine that. This is the cook in the kitchen. Right, yeah. <laughs> Hagfish being such ancient little creatures, uh, they have no vertebral column, so they've got no backbone, um, but they are chordates, so they're predecessors of vertebrates. They don't okay. have a backbone, but they have like a central mm. um, nerve running down the sp- where a spine would be found. Okay. Uh, and they do have a skull, so they're these... They're, it was for years and years they were trying to figure out where did they fit into the the evolution of vertebrates, and it's been debated back and forth for a really long time. They're considered to be predecessors of the current bony fish and everything that came after them. Um, but, they, yeah, they have this slime which they seem to have evolved as a gill-clogging defence against ah. predators. So if a bigger fish comes and tries to eat this uh, slimy or the hagfish it suddenly releases all this microfilament slime which clogs up the gills of the fish that's trying (laughs) to eat them and then they shuck it off their skin and swim away because they've got gills too. So they don't want to get their gills clogged with it. They want it to clog up the the fish that's trying to eat them. Fair enough. Um, 
So it's the gills of the hagfish themselves that was the subject of recent research by scientists from James Cook University who travelled to Vancouver Island in Canada to go fishing. Uh And they dragged up all these uh, hagfish from the bottom of the ocean. They mostly hang around on the bottom of the ocean waiting for dead things to fall down, which they then eat. You're not really making them sound all that they're, pleasant. They're an important <laughs> really? part of the of the ecosystem of the ocean. They break down dead animals Stop. into nutrients that get recycled and all that stuff. Thank I, I you, appreciate. Hagfish. Yeah, someone has to do it, but do you have to be like a, a slimy eel <laughs> at the same time? <laughs> they they are really not very attractive yeah. little creatures. I'm sure they're attractive to each other though. Mm. Yeah, that's that's usually how how organisms continue their legacy. So the team were interested in how fish might cope with rising ocean acidity, Hmm. which is caused by raised CO2 levels. And so basically they got the hagfish and tested that directly by putting them in water with raised CO2 levels. Fair enough. So the acidity goes up as you add more uh, carbon dioxide. Hagfish have very thin skin. So they're long and skinny and they have got very thin skin. So there's no real need for them to have gills because they can get enough oxygen for their activities just by absorbing it directly through their skin because they basically just sit on the bottom of the ocean waiting for things to fall on top of them. And the researchers thought that maybe their gills have another function. And what they found was that the hagfish use their gills to regulate internal pH which allows them to survive in far more acidic environments than a lot of other fish species. So they actually absorb bicarbonate out of the water, which helps keep their internal pH regulated. So obviously internal pH is pretty important for most organisms because enzymes and proteins are very uh, sensitive to pH levels. They'll actually change their shape if the pH gets too high or too low, and that means that they stop working. So your enzymes that are supposed to be keeping your metabolism running stop working. If you can't regulate internal pH, most organisms find it very difficult to stay alive. What they found was that the hagfish can stay alive in acidity levels 50 or 60 times higher than most other fish. So if ocean acidification is a problem... Not There'll be lots them. and lots of hagfish Yuck. and not much else. <laughs> right, okay. So, um, so yeah, so they also, they, they sort of looked at this and went, um, you know, this is a possible advantage of having gills that isn't directly related to breathing. It obviously allows fish to extract more oxygen, but in the case of the hagfish who's got thin skin and the ability to absorb enough oxygen already, it may have developed gills as an acidity regulator rather than as uh, an oxygen extraction system. How um, acidic were the oceans? Well, like, maybe they lived in. Maybe they lived in. You know, it, it might have been regionally. Yeah, um, I guess they're under. You changeable. said that they were low. They're found really deep in the oceans. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, they're bottom feeders, so they oh, so might be, could be sulfur vents and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Altering the pH, but it, you know, it's it's a great advantage if you can survive somewhere that your competition can't survive too. Yeah. So if you think about the niches they could occupy, it's, it's, yeah. it's a pretty useful skill. They, they thought so you're the saying thing... there's a lot of competition for the hagfish lifestyle? Mm, <laughs> pro- probably not so much. <laughs> <laughs> they think that maybe the, uh, the gills had multiple functions and that over time that the ability to use them to extract oxygen allowed fish to grow thicker skins and be more active and, you know, get larger mm. because they had the ability to do that, whereas that you would think that would have to predate the getting larger. There's no point getting larger if you can't breathe. 
So as you say, there's not much that's more important than breathing for uh, for uh, organisms that um, have respiratory systems. Mm. Um, so if you want to look at that research, that's actually published in Scientific Reports, and the uh, paper is called Hagfish, Champions of CO2 Tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> Question the origins of vertebrate gill function. So you can actually look at that whole, uh, the whole paper is available um, online. So I will put the link up on our website, on our Facebook and stuff, and you can uh, have a look for it there. There's Probably. something positive about the hagfish. They're champions of something. Champions. Yeah. Go, hagfish. Jurassic World, dinosaurs making a comeback, reintroducing species into the environment, fantasy world, entering the real world, all of this stuff just got me thinking about rewilding. And before you start getting really scared about a velociraptor knocking on your back door, I just wanted to maybe drop it down a notch to the real world rewilding. Rewilding is the idea of restoring a habitat to its previous state, so not nearly as terrifying. Basically, the idea is that by restoring plants and animal communities to their once uh, natural state, you can promote the survival of threatened species and then um, return the earth to pristine conditions. It's not necessarily going as far back as the Jurassic period, but with these rewilding techniques, we're thinking more pre-European settlement. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that mammoths and reintroducing megafauna is completely off the table, but I'm just saying that the examples that mm -hmm. I'm about to talk about are, um, are more close to home and a little more recent. So what, what are we talking about? What kind of um, ecosystems are we rewilding? So if we bring it to a Australian context, it's mm -hmm. basically um, rewilding Australia back to what it was before all of this lovely manipulation that we've done here. Um, it's not really a secret that uh, we have a number of introduced species in mm -hmm. Australia. And for whatever reason, whether they were um, introduced for hunting or for game or for food or for pest control. Or just ran went, away. Yep, or just ran away. Um, we've got a lot of these animals taking over our landscape and the poor little Aussie animals, the poor native guys and girls are all being pushed out of their um, environments and out of their niches as these other animals mm -hmm. are taking over and bec becoming highly, highly competitive. So I've got a couple really terrifying stats for you all in terms of the animal world. Australia has lost approximately 10% of its faunas, of fauna population so far, and we have the world's worst record for mammal extinction on the planet. When you say 10%, the 10% of number of individual, 10% of species? 10% of population, so species right, populations, okay. yeah. And um, when we talk about the world's worst record for um, mammal extinction, a third of all global mammal extinctions have been in Australia. So we've lost a lot of our critters. Hmm. 
And so you can imagine with um, how things go, urbanization and cities spanning and our cities sprawling and spreading across um, the entire landscape, we're probably just going to lose more. Yep. So um, this is where rewilding comes into play. So some scientists suggest that by returning uh, the ecosystems to their natural state, we may actually be able to promote our native animals in these areas. So by keeping out all the all the introduced species, all the pests, all the, um, the introduced predators, we give our species a chance. So the particular projects that I have in mind are actually led by the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Mm-hmm. There are other um, rewilding Australia projects taking place and in um, in their theoretical stages. However, in New South Wales, there's three rewilding centers um, currently in the works, and they're meant to be getting their native Aussie animals back to New South Wales sometime soon later this year. So basically, the, um, the centers are fenced natural reserves, and they will have introduced a lot of the Australian mammals, including brush-tailed batong, some western barred bandicoots, greater bilby, the western quoll, and many other Australian mammals. So it's kind of important that we have these species. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, um, a lot of it is because they have a pretty good uh, function in their ecosystems. They're not just there because they look cute, but they do a lot. Um, a lot of these mammals that are coming back are actually what we in the ecology world like to call ecosystem engineers. And as engineers, their behaviors, um, so most of these animals are burrowing animals, so I'll use burrowing as an example, but they help to engineer the landscape and they aid in natural processes. So by making these burrows, they're helping um, really enrich the soil because they help with water retention processes and nutrient retention processes, and the soil becomes um, better for the plant communities that need to use it. So it's better for all, um, all of the vegetation, including some vegetation that we use as humans. Is um, restoring some of the um, plant species part of the, the process as well? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, a lot of the uh, grasslands and um, a lot of the original vegetation in terms of the trees and shrubs will be uh, retained in these areas as well. So it's all it's kind of ground up <laughs> and it's starting with the vegetation and then, mm-hmm. inclu- and then introducing these animals back to these areas. Right. Um, yeah. So anyways, with these projects... Um, I mentioned that there are large fenced areas, there are natural reserves, um, and they're keeping away the threats of feral cats or fox and mm-hmm. all these different predators so that our little our little mammals can still flourish and thrive. So the big issue with these projects basically has to do with retaining these projects and having them grow without too much human influence. If, so they need to be they need to be self sustaining. Yes, yeah. basically. So if basically if we're con- continuously encouraging it along, we're not going to make much of a difference mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. The um, these pol- or these projects need to be coupled with policies to conserve our environment, and we need to reconsider massively expanding and developing every inch of space we have. And we also need to be careful about um, accidentally reintroducing or introducing new species um, to the to the landscape that don't belong here. Right. Basically, if we keep going the same way that we have been going, we're going to just lose all of the native species anyways. So it's not like it's going to make a big difference. So we've got to change some human policies to help it along as well.
across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and National Science Week is nearly upon us. And one of the events happening in Science Week in Melbourne is the Astronomy and Light Festival, which will be taking place at Scienceworks in Spotswood on Saturday, the 22nd of August. Uh, now, this is an event that is celebrating, obviously, astronomy and light. It is put on by the Mount Burnett Observatory with support from many groups, including the Centre for Centre of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics, known as CASTRO. Uh, but anyway, I am talking to one of the coordinators of this event, uh, Jacinta Dan Besson from the University of Melbourne. Jacinta, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, this is a very exciting event, so I imagine there'll be a lot of people coming along with telescopes and going to want to get a look at the uh, the night sky in Melbourne. Yeah, so our big plan is to have a whole field of telescopes in the middle of ScienceWorks looking at the night sky. We've just got to hope that the uh, weather behaves itself and puts on a good show for us. But don't be disappointed if we do get bad weather. We're going to set the telescopes up inside so you can still see what they look like and what they do. So people can look at the, the roof then or something? Yeah, but we'll also have the planetarium shows going um, at a, a smaller, shorter um, show so that you can see what the sky looks like inside some, on some nice, warm, comfy chairs as well. Okay, well, it's good to know that people are guaranteed then a view of the night sky. Now, um, these astronomy events like this, I notice no, there's always a lot of astronomy events on in Science Week every year. Uh, is it one of the more popular areas of uh, science, you think? Absolutely. Everyone's fascinated with science, uh, with astronomy in particular, and so much going on, especially at the moment with Pluto and um, the asteroids, and it's just very exciting. I understand that you also uh, run the Telescopes in School program here at the University of Melbourne, um, as far as another way of getting kids interested in, in science and in astro astronomy in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a program that we've been running for three and a half years now where we've actually got research-grade telescopes in schools around Melbourne and through regional Victoria. And the students are learning how to use the telescopes. They're all computerised, so they're not simple. Um, and they've also been learning how to do some astrophotography as well. Some of the students are so proficient, they get their telescope licence, which is pretty cool. Okay, and this is it's like a great way to get kids interested in um, in in science. Um, I suppose girls in particular is we want to get interested in in science. I know you've done some some work on uh, women getting more women into physics. Absolutely, yeah, this is a big one, and we've actually found that uh, one of the girls' schools that we attend on a regular basis, the girls they, they get they gain so much more confidence because they're actually using this mechanical technical equipment and they come out with this self-belief that they can actually do this um, type of job, have this type of career, whereas I guess society and people tell us girls that we can't do that, unfortunately. Well, clearly you didn't get that message because you're a physicist yourself, I understand. Uh, what got you interested in physics in the first place? Uh, yeah, I've always been fascinated with how things work, why they do that, the way they do, um, understanding how it happens, and the fact that we can use an equation to describe 
the universe is pretty amazing. So I've really enjoyed following that path and, yeah, unravelling things through mathematics and physics. Okay, and what sort of physics has interested you the most in your career? Um, funnily enough, I started out looking at, well, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist when I was at school, as you do, and then I sort of delved towards uh, crystallography and looking at the structure of crystals using proton probes or um, the big machine down the basement of the physics building at Melbourne University called the Pelotron, which is a big particle accelerator, well, a small particle accelerator compared to CERN, but big nonetheless. So imagine uh, you've got a Van de Graaff machine. That's the machine where if you put your hands on it, uh, a big metal ball at the top in your hair um, goes up in the air. Imagine that two storeys high. So... Um, we use that to make protons go really fast and fire them at crystals and see what they did. So that was my initial research. And now I'm really enjoying astronomy, looking at the stars, learning about the night sky and taking photos of it. It's become a real passion of mine now. Okay, so is that going to be a feature of the event as well, the astrophotography? Yeah, so there's also a photography competition that's open to schools, uh, both teachers and students, and usually we there are a lot of uh, photography competitions open throughout Australia, but they tend to concentrate or be, I guess, attended by the amateur astrophotographers or professional astrophotographers. So this is open to school kids, which I'm really excited about. We had one just for the Telescopes in Schools program a few years ago, and we were really impressed with what the students were able to come up with. So, yeah, get your cameras out. And being the International Year of Light, though, there is a light category as well in the photo competition? That's right. So it's been really annoying the last two weeks in Melbourne over the school holidays. We have just had rain and cloud constantly. So hopefully people have not been too uh, disappointed with having no clear skies at night and have actually been able to get their cameras out and take some interesting photos of light. Um, so anything goes. As long as you're showing us how cool light is and the physics of light and so on, then we're interested in seeing those pictures. Great. Uh, now, clearly light and astronomy do have uh, a lot to, to go together, really, but how else are you sort of celebrating the year of light at this event? Uh, so we've got some demonstrations of light. The lightning room will be happening as well. Again, another uh, short, shorter show than you usually get at ScienceWorks. But we With the Ben and Graf generator as well? Uh, I don't know, actually. I don't know what they've got in store, but the Tesla coil will be operating and you will see some lightning. That's guaranteed. We're also working on a light maze. So has anyone, I hope everyone's, or you may have seen the Sean Connery movie Entrapment and you saw Catherine Zeta-Jones working her way through the laser beams to get the, I don't know, some sort of treasure at the end. So the guys in the physics, um, in the optics group here in physics are going to be trying to put together a light maze that um, people can try their hands at. And there are a couple of other um, interesting demos as well. And, yeah, a lot of displays, hands-on activities and so on. Brilliant. Okay, so this is all happening at ScienceWorks, as I said, on the 22nd of August. Uh, how, where can people go to find out more information about this? You can head to our website, 
It's ALIV for Astronomy and Light Victoria 2015.wordpress.com. Google Astronomy and Light Festival. We're also on the International Year of Light website, National Science Week website, ScienceWorks, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. We're trying to cover all the bases. Well, I think that you've given enough there for people to, um, to find out about. And uh, tickets are on sale at the moment as well. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Please um, get on to it and get your tickets. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us. Uh, that again was Jacinta Denbesson from the University of Melbourne speaking about the Astronomy and Light Festival for Science Week. So we've come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science uh, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, you can do that on the internet. Uh, we have our Gmail account, which is lostinsight at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and we are on the Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting foundation and if you can't harass us enough by digital means you can always tune in next week where the team will be back to once again get lost Lost in science listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.